I mean, specifically for the pitchfork thing, when they first reviewed our first record, I had friends who were getting like 1.3s and shit. <laughs> so the fact, the fact that we were able to get, you know, a, a middle of the road over five, you know, I think to the, our 19-year-old minds, it's like, all right, we'll take it. 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. My guest today is Andy Hall of the great Atlanta band Manchester Orchestra. Manchester has a new record coming out on July 28th. It's called A Black Mile to the Surface. I really love it a lot. I actually wrote about this record last month on uprocks.com. Um, I went down to Georgia, hung out with the band, and I came back and I wrote this 3,600-word opus about the making of the record as well as the background of the band. Um, and I had such a good time with the band and talking with Andy that I thought it would be fun to have him on the podcast, and he graciously agreed. So he came on, and we had a really great conversation. If you're not familiar with Manchester Orchestra, allow me to fill in sort of the general biographical information about the band. They formed in 2004, and their first two records, 2006's I'm Like a Virgin Losing a Child and 2009's Mean Everything to Nothing, uh, are two of the most influential records to come out of the punk emo scene of the last 10 years. Uh, Manchester Orchestra has been a pivotal influence for artists such as Julian Baker, Sorority Noise, and Modern Baseball, uh, all of whom are young artists who grew up listening to Manchester Orchestra. But as good as those early records are, I would actually argue that A Black Mile to the Surface is the band's best record, or it's for sure my favorite record that the band has done. Uh, the band worked on this record uh, in the back half of 2016. They recorded it at their home studio, and uh, they ended up working with uh, a real sort of uh, murderous row of top-line indie rock producers, including Catherine Hall, John Congleton, and Jonathan Wilson. Um, and the result of all that work is uh, this beautiful, multi-layered, I guess, meditation on the nature of fatherhood. Uh, Hull, of course, became a father in 2015, and uh, the way that he writes about fatherhood, uh, it's really fascinating because the record sort of shifts between a sort of a memoir approach and a more literary style that uh, reminded me a lot of Stephen King when I listened to the record. There's a real sort of supernatural element to some of the narratives in the songs on this record, um, but it's always grounded in this very real, very personal perspective on a guy who's just had his first child and is trying to figure out if he's going to be a good dad. Um, so it really marks a, a, a big moment for Manchester Orchestra. Not only have they progressed lyrically, I think, but they've also created a very mature-sounding record. And I know mature-sounding record can sometimes be a backhanded compliment, meaning that you've sort of entered a more sort of staid adult period of your career, but in the case of Manchester Orchestra, I think they've really found a way to retain uh, the great hooks of their earlier of, of their early career, but also moving in a more sort of nuanced, sophisticated musical direction, um, resulting again in a record that I think uh, represents a new high mark for the band. So I wanted to have Andy on to talk about the record, but also talk about his own journey to this point. Um, he started the band when he was a teenager back in the mid-2000s and 
when the band was having those early years of success, you know, he was basically, you know, if he hadn't been in a band, he would have been in college. So think about yourself at 19, 20 years old, uh, trying to navigate a world where you're suddenly becoming fairly well known. You have a lot more money than you used to have. Um, you're running your own small business, and yet you're also a person who doesn't really know how to take care of themselves. You know, that's the situation that Andy was in, uh, you know, 10 years ago or so. Um, so I was fascinated to talk to him about how he survived all that and uh, how, also how he's applied the lessons that he's learned over the years to, to mentor younger musicians um, and also sort of spin it forward in his own career um, and how he used those lessons when he was working on the new record. So we talked about all these things and many, many th- other things as well in this interview, and I think it turned out really well. So here is my conversation with Andy Hall of Manchester Orchestra. Well, Andy, thanks for coming on my podcast. I'm, I'm glad I have another excuse to talk to you. <laughs> I know. I missed you. I, I know. It's like, you know, we hung out in the suburbs of Atlanta. We got sushi. We drank we did. light beer, hung out at the band house. I felt so tight. And then, you know, then you have to fly away. And it's like, I'll never get to talk to I know. It again. was a romantic two days. And there's a, there a hole left. And now it's finally being filled again. <laughs> let's, uh, let's start with this. This is sort of like a meta question. But, you know, when you know that you have like a journalist coming to town and, he, you know, and he's going to be hanging out with you and the band and, you know, asking questions, asking personal questions, you know, like what is that process like? I mean, I, I, I'm just trying to imagine what it's like from like the musician's standpoint. I mean, is it like an almost famous thing? Like, the enemy is coming to town and we have to like prepare ourselves or like what, what's that process like? And then to see it written and stuff like, is that ever weird for you? Oh, well it's, yeah, it's sort of terrifying for sure. I mean, you know, we, I was familiar with um, your stuff once I kind of did a little research on who you were and realized, you know, that I'd read several of your articles and um, he seemed like a normal person, which was good. <laughs> um, and I think, um, yeah, you're just kind of, I guess for me, I'm probably an overthinker though when it comes to it. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of like, what do you, what are you going to make sure you don't say? <laughs> um, what side of you should not be seen? <laughs> um, and then, you know, I can't really help myself. I just start talking and, um, you know, whenever the person's here. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the, the scariest part is always, you know, the link a week or so later. <laughs> where that's right. sent in the email that's like here's you know thousands of words on you <laughs> right exactly yeah I <laughs> mean, it's a little it's scary reading it the first time but man you were so nice about us so it was i felt amazing afterwards well i'm I'm glad i it's weird because like I, you know i wrote a book you know came out last year and that was the, yeah. my first time sort of being in your position like where i created something that was personal and then I had to put out in the world and actually have people review it. You know, I, right. I, I'm used to writing things, and you have readers who will talk to you on Twitter and, and and that kind of response. But I'd never been reviewed before, and I actually thought that was a pretty valuable experience. You know, the, how was it for you? Well, you know, it's kind of like what you describe, where you you feel very exposed. You know, mm-hmm. you feel like um, you know you've put your heart and soul into this thing. And you know that it's not you, but 
it feels like an extension of you. It feels like one of your body parts in a way. And totally. people are analyzing it. And, you know, I was lucky, you know, most of the reviews of the book were pretty good, but occasionally you read reviews where people are projecting certain things onto what you've done that you didn't <laughs> intend. And that's always a weird thing. But you also realize that if you put something out into the world, you lose control of it. You, you don't get to define what it is for people anymore. Uh, totally. That's kind of a hard thing. I always think about that. I don't know if you saw the Lonely Island movie, Popstar. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I love that scene where he's reading the reviews, the like first day reviews. <laughs> you know, and he's just trying to justify to himself as much as he can that, you know, like maybe everyone doesn't hate it. And I really don't know what that would be like. That that must be a next level of self pain <laughs> to, to have something panned, you know? Right. But I mean, um, you, but you have been in the position of like, you know, and we, we, we joked about this a little bit when, uh, when we were hanging out, but like pitchfork has written sort of, you know, middle, like middling reviews of the records. Yeah. You know, throughout the career and like you when we were talking about it you had a sense of humor about it but i have to imagine in the moment if you read a review that's sort of mixed to negative i mean is are you angry do you feel embarrassed like what are you what's going through your mind in situations like that i mean specifically for the pitchfork thing when they first reviewed our first record i had friends who were getting like 1.3s and shit <laughs> so the fact the fact that we were able to get, you know, a, a middle of the road over five, you know, I think to the, our 19-year-old minds, it's like, all right, we'll take it, you know. And then as they kind of kept coming in at around the same spot, we realized, oh, okay, they're they're never gonna they're never gonna talk too badly about us, and they're never gonna be too too kind about us. And then, you know, third and fourth record, it it, it really did start to become pretty funny, <laughs> where you have these reviews that are. <clears throat> 5.1 and a 5.2 and a 5.3. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And, yeah. You guys talked about how like the scores that you've gotten are each like a 0.1 higher. 0.1 higher. Yeah. For four records. And if you cannot find humor in that, um, I don't know what else you can. I mean, that's just very funny. It's sort of the epitome of why that stuff shouldn't really matter. <laughs> well, it also means that if you make, like, I guess, like 20 more records, that you will eventually get to a 10.0. One of these days, dude. So, you know, that's the dream. It's incrementally getting higher, <laughs> you know? So, like, when you're 60 or something, that's when you're going to make the perfect record. So that's something Yeah, to and then to all the you. people that wrote those first reviews about us will be dead anyway. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, and this was something that I... I talked a lot about in my story just because I think it's fascinating you know the I mean you you're only 30 years old but like you are like a music industry veteran at this point you've been in a bit you know you've been in this band for like 11 years or so you put out a lot of records even though you're you're still a young man by any other definition and I guess I'm I'm very interested in like how you kind of survived those early times because to be that young and to have the responsibility of a, of a successful band, which is basically like running your own small business in a way. Um, For sure. Yeah. You know, I, 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 like I picture myself at 19 and I couldn't do my laundry, you know, myself. Totally. Neither could I. <laughs> Had to learn how to do that pretty quickly. You, but, Actually, you know what I used to do was I would, um, I would buy, let's say it's like a two month tour. So I would go to like Target and buy 60 white t-shirts and 60 pairs of underwear, and 60 pairs of socks. And um, that would be, you know, and a couple pairs of jeans. And then I would just throw my clothes away. 
after <laughs> each show and just not worry about ever having dirty laundry. See, and economically, that really started to catch up with me. See, well, but in my mind, it's like spend a hundred bucks. Yeah, we got fresh stuff all the time. Um, but to answer your question, you know, man, I was really fortunate. That the people I was working with and and our manager, our first manager, who we chose to sign with um, originally, it's a guy named Steve Rabowski who has a track record all the way from like Talking Heads, you know, to The Strokes, to recently like Alt J and um, Frightened Rabbit. And you know, when he had signed us, he had just left RCA where he had signed like Ben Queller, My Morning Jacket, The Strokes, Ray LaMontagne people we were listening to and thought were really cool. And he had his hand in all those records that we loved. And he was just, and still is a, a mentor to this day, but he was just a guy that was able to talk to me because he'd spent his career talking with teen, young teenagers and early twenties artists that had a tendency to lose their minds. You know? <laughs> and uh, he was, he was a massive help for me. And really just the people, even all the way the head to the head of, the, of Sony at that time, I think still the head of Sony Music was this guy, Rob Stringer. And he was just a very kind guy to me, you know, and I always asked a ton of questions about everything all the time, and I still do. And so I just kind of continued to seek as much advice as I could from everybody. And that helped me from veering, you know, too far and um, the expectations getting too large, you know. Well, let's let's just kind of briefly condense your background for people who didn't read my story or maybe haven't sure. aren't super familiar with your background, haven't read the Wikipedia entry yet. Um, right. You're you're born in Georgia. You lived there for the first six seven years of your life. And stop yeah. me by the way if I get anything wrong here. But my, but you you live in Georgia early childhood. Your family moves to Toronto uh, from like age seven to thirteen for you because yep. your dad is a pastor. And he gets a job at like a mega church out in Toronto, so he's a successful mm-hmm. preacher out there. Then you guys end up moving back to Georgia when you're 13 or so, and that's around the time you start kind of getting into music and writing songs, right? Like 13, 14 years old. Yeah, it was kind of my second emergency. I guess the first time was like you know, I think my first guitar was at 10, and I just couldn't really figure it out. All I could play was like. Machine Head by Bush, and uh, <laughs> then I gave it up. And yeah, like 13 is when I discovered what a power chord was, and then it was like pretty much, you know, funny songs for the first year, you know, and, and trying to make my friends laugh. And then once uh, emotions, you know, and the pain of 14 really hit, <laughs> then I got into my sensitive side. Yeah, I mean, because when you broke into music, I mean, it predates this era that we have now where people who are younger just post things to Bandcamp, and if you catch on right. to Bandcamp, that can be a way to start a music career. I mean, you, you know, got started in the olden days, basically, you know, before that Yeah, we existed. just caught the, like, right when stuff started to happen for us, it was right around MySpace being, you know, like you would put MySpace on your record as, right. like, another website for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and that was really the very first time where people could discover stuff for free in, in a tangible way. Um, and it's so funny. I was having a conversation the other day about how it's changed so much. Like MySpace was really a place like for compliments. Um, there, there was never people there dogging music. And, you know, I'm sure there were some places, but we always just remembered it as like, yeah, this is like a very exciting time where you could 
discover these bands. And then that back, that, that ended up uh, kind of exploding in the industry's face because bands started to figure out how to rig it and how many plays they got. And, you know, these guys would get, some bands would get record deals off of how many MySpace plays a day they're getting and it wouldn't go anywhere. There were all sorts of horror stories happening around that time too. See, like, so you could actually stream music on MySpace. I was trying to remember that because I remember... You could pick, like, you could pick two songs and then... Then I think they expanded it to four, and then once it, then I then I lost track. It's like I really can't even remember when it went away. <laughs> it just disappeared. Yeah, it's because I remember it actually being a pretty big deal. You know, as a person who who's, you know, I, that's when I started writing about music at that time. So like, you would go on MySpace pages to learn about sort of young up and coming bands. I mean, that really right. was, you know, like the, the early internet model for that sort of thing. And yeah, they, then it just totally disappeared and there was this gap between MySpace and and when Bandcamp became a thing where I guess bands Well, was... and that was all then that turned into pirating. Right. You know, so then there were the years of like when leaks really were a problem. <laughs> and it's funny it's like that's gone away too in a lot of ways now. Like did you guys ever get burned like with a leak? We were always really fortunate. Um we never did. It was you know, I think the worst we ever got was the week before. Um, you know, I think the first few is that not, there wasn't a demand for it. And, um, and I think by our third record, we were just, we were really careful about it. Yeah. So going back to like, you're 13, 14 years old, you finally learned what a power chord is. You're starting to add to your repertoire. You have Machine Head in your back pocket from 10. Already. And Song 2 by Blur. I got, I got two down. (laughs) And you're, and you're writing sort of jokey songs for your friends. How did you go from that? sort of just kind of having fun phase to actually moving towards becoming like a professional musician Hmm. as as a teenager? Slowly. Um, Slowly, but like confidently. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I kept, um, I kept saving up money to go into the, to uh, quote unquote recording studio, which was an older guy's, um, you and I talked about every band has that older guy that helps in the beginning. Um, yeah. And uh, this guy just had a studio in his apartment. And um, so, yeah, I would, I would finish school and just go there and, and keep recording and keep recording. And I finally put together, I'd say probably like eight to 11 songs, something like that. Um, there's, I found a CD a few years ago that was just, it said 11 songs and like a hundred capital utilization marks because I was just couldn't believe I had reached the double digits. Um, and by, by that time I started to kind of think about putting together a band that wasn't, that was really just me and then some friends coming in to help. And, uh, and that was the summer we played this battle of the bands at a church while kids are like climbing a rock wall super lame and it just so happened that um an associate editor at paste magazine was there and uh he just actually just spoke with him a few nights ago because he had read the article and was really excited about the new record he was talking about how he just kept telling everybody like there's something here there's something here and not a lot of people believed him but i believed him (laughs) and that was sort of the beginning i guess of the professional side of um, what I did around like 17 and then he offered to fund an album our first full length like real album um, for what would have been my senior year 
my parents let me homeschool myself. And there is something really funny, too. In the article, you said that um, I got my GED, and that really made my mom angry <laughs> because I did get a diploma. Oh, you did? I have to, I have to send you the screenshot. It's really funny. Oh, no. I'm sorry. I thought I read I, I thought that. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry, Mrs. Hall. Wherever it was you a, are. a perfect mom response. Excuse me, damn it! Exactly. You got a diploma. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know one thing we talked about too, and I didn't really delve into the story uh, too much about this. But I mean, what, some of your earliest experiences playing music was playing in in church, and yeah. and you know, I grew up going to church and going to like Christian rock music festivals, like when I was yeah. a teenager in the nineties, and. I'm still kind of fascinated by that world. I, I mean, it, it did seem for a while there that there were a lot of bands and artists who maybe necessarily weren't Christian rock, but like they kind of got their chops up by playing churches, like the church circuit. I don't know if that still happens or not. I feel like that was true a lot in the 90s and 2000s. But I mean, do you feel like that was like a like a training ground for you in a way, like coming up? For sure. I mean, just being in front of people and playing um, and, and having to get over that nervous, you know, I feel lucky that when I was 16, I could play in front of 500 people, even if I was playing songs that I wasn't really connecting with, I was still trying to learn how to play them and learn how to perform them in front of people. Yeah. And I think that was, you know, a huge, um, experience just to kind of help calm those early nerves. And then it's also, I mean, it influenced me to realize what I don't want to do. <laughs> right. I remember being offered you know, or there was talks of, you know, a position at some church opening up and I could have been like 18 and, you know, leading worship at some church with a really comfortable, great salary. And it's just like, this is absolutely the last thing that I want to do. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it, I felt like, oh my God, I'm trapped. I have to get out of here. These people are crazy. Right. Or, or there's like bands that just kind of make a living playing that circuit. Like they'll just play churches and, or like these, these big mega churches and play for youth festivals and stuff. And like you can make a pretty good living doing that. And I mean, I don't know. I'm not here to judge if that's like whatever. I don't think it's that cool. That's, <laughs> that's just my opinion. Um, it's, for me, you know, it was all more about music and, and how, do I, how can I be the most free you know, when, when I'm making music and if, if that, ha you know, if every song has to be, you know, catered to a crowd and like a built-in crowd, I never liked that idea either. Right. You know, if you sound enough like the last ones, you'll, you'll sell enough to make some money. And like, yeah, I felt sort of allergic to that. Yeah. I remember like when I was like, again, like a teenager going to church, like there was this poster in the youth room where they said, Oh, the chart. Yeah. Like what they say, like, if you like this band, this is the Christian equivalent. <laughs> Like, did you have like something like that at your church too? Of course. I'm sure we were looking at the same one. <laughs> it's like if you like Blink-182, right. then you actually like MXPX. Right, exactly. <laughs> Except there's no you know, songs about fucking a dog in MXPX. <laughs> you, know, you can avoid that stuff. You, know, you can still be a good Christian and listen to this, but you get the pop punk goodness. The element of that, yeah. I mean, there were a ton of really great bands that were in that scene around that time, you know, bands that were outside of the normal, bands like Starflyer 59 or right. Pedro the Lion. I mean, there was plenty of really cool stuff happening that wasn't contrived and, and kind of milking that in, you know. Right. Like, like for you, you know, 
it, it seems like when you were still pretty young and hadn't been writing songs that long that there were adults around you that saw something in you that they thought he's a good songwriter now but he could be a great songwriter later on like yeah what do you think it is that they heard in you at that time i really don't know (laughs) (laughs) i think i was probably better than the 16 year old next to me writing songs (laughs) um but other than that I, i don't i don't really know I mean, do you think they thought, like, oh, this guy could actually make a lot of money? I mean, do you think that was part of the motivation at all, ever? It's still a question that totally confuses me. I mean, we were, like, signing our first deal, and, like, our record label that we started, Favorite Gentleman, was, you know, kind of going into this partnership with Columbia, and they're giving us our own label and doing this whole thing, and there was, you know, good, a bit of money that was being spent by them in order to get our band, and... I just had no idea. And I remember even saying to our manager back then, they don't think we're going to sell like 30,000 copies of this record because we're not. And he's like, you're out of your fucking mind. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm glad you think we will, but that's, that wasn't on my, my immediate path. Um, so it's still, it's still kind of confusing to me. Yeah. I don't really know. I mean, one thing that you talked a lot about, you know, when, when we were hanging out is, and, and this is in my story too, that, I mean, you've, you've actually become sort of a mentor for younger musicians. Like I talked a lot to Julian Baker and, and Julian, I think is like 21 years old and she just signed a deal with, with Matador. And she's gotten a lot of acclaim already in her career. Like in a way she's in a similar position to where you were at, at that moment in your life. I mean, right. and there's also like, Cameron from Sorority Noise, and I'm sure there's other people too. Like when you talk to musicians around that age, what specifically are you telling them about? Like, what are you warning them about, and uh, what are you telling them to look out for? I mean, those—they're all really smart people, you know, um, to to even get where they're at too. So I try and more um, just, I guess, remind them of what's important and and kind of how to level yourself. And, and you know, a lot of times, I, something I still need, which is, I'm, this feels crazy. Is this normal? Is this, you know, am I nuts for thinking this and feeling this way? And it's just important to hear people that you trust say, no, that's normal. You know, this happens. Think about what you're doing. Think about the toll it's taken on your body and your mind. And you're going to, after 200 shows, you're going to feel like a completely crazy person. But I can tell you from my experience, you go home and get yourself centered and peaceful you know you, you'll want to play music again and you know i still go through the same the same feeling it's always about that four or five week point on a tour and your brain starts to kind of turn on you um and that just continues to happen when you're making records and i don't know i guess just trying to be any type of voice of reason that i can be you know to say like hey it's it's possible to, to be semi-healthy and and do this like when you say your brain starts to go on you a little bit after five weeks mm-hmm. on the road what what is it exactly about that experience it's a similar psychosis for me as like the kind of first couple weeks of making a record when you're doing the drum you know snare drum for the third straight day and <laughs> all of a sudden you're not thinking about the snare drum anymore but you're thinking about how nobody's going to like the album and this is already a huge failure and that starts to happen and similarly on tour you kind of this like what's the point you know am i just a fraud i'm a fake i'm not really feeling it 
but I'm doing it for these people, but I'm not doing it for these people. I'm doing it for myself. And you know, that, that upstairs mix up that you have to just kind of talk down and breathe down. And, um, it's gotten a ton better as, as you could, as I've gotten older and I'm, I'm hoping, imagining it will, as I continue to get older, you, know, you can sort of prioritize and compartmentalize those emotions and figure out which ones are valid to be concerned about and then figure out the ones that are, you know, just that bad dude in your head kind of trying to talk shit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously now that you're older, you're better psychologically equipped to deal with all the stresses that come in the job. I'm wondering though, like, I mean, you have a wife and child now. Does that make it harder to tour in that way? Certainly, yeah. I mean, I'm fortunate. That I think they're going to be able to come out for some solid chunks on this tour, um, which we've not done before because I haven't really toured since Maisie's been born. Um, but, yeah, it, it makes every decision that you make. You know, now, now it's no longer six-week tours. I need to, like, be gone for four weeks. And they need to be there for some of it. And I think that also just helps calm down, you know, that anxiety, you know, all right, at the end of this three weeks, regardless, um, I'm seeing them. And that's something that you just kind of have to tell yourself in those moments. Like time doesn't stand still. Yeah. It will be three weeks eventually, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just try and do your best. Right. You know, I kind of going back to like when you, kind of got first got started and, and by the way forgive me for focusing on some of the more behind the music aspects of your career no, I don't but care. you know we have to uh make this podcast uh sexy as we can but uh <laughs> i mean one i was one of the things i was really kind of fascinated by when we were talking is you were talking about those early, those early records you know i'm like a virgin losing a child and mean everything to nothing which really caught on fast and uh, you know, you found an audience right away and you talked at that time about, and you also got married at that time and you were, you know, like in your early twenties and you talked a lot about how that was a real sort of like mind fuck type situation. Um, like what are your memories of that now? I guess, looking back on that, um, and like, how did you get, how'd you work your way through that? Because I mean, cause you did say that when we talked that you felt like if there was ever a moment in your career where you kind of lost your head a little bit or yeah. you started getting full well, of Yeah, yourself, the wheels that... came off the track a little bit, for right, sure. Right, right. Like, what was it? Like, My memories of that? of that. I have a lot of memories of that. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I mean, the staples would be, I remember touring Virgin for two years. And then I remember my wife graduating college. And I went out on another tour. I got home, we were getting married in a few weeks, and we got married, lived in this really tiny one-bedroom apartment, um, trying to kind of suss and feel each other out. We were a long-distance couple, you know, for all those years. She was going to school in Alabama, and I was on tour all the time. So, you know, we really hadn't spent a ton of just long blocks of time together, you know, a couple weeks here or there. We'd see each other often and talk all the time. But, you know, had never really lived together, um, which was also crazy. So it's just, you know, the combination of all those things. So we're living there, and then I go to Nashville and start making me and everything to nothing. And we both, it was like her first year of teaching, and she, right out of school, and she was taking it, you know, as she should have, extremely seriously, really wanted to do a great job in, in her work. And I was making me and everything to nothing, and, you know, having 
stomach ulcers about, you know, the sophomore slump and what's going to happen and all those fears I had about, you know, when we signed the first record deal for I'm Like a Virgin, you know, like, will I be able to make something that people will react to again? Because you just don't know if it's a fluke or not um, at that point. And, um, you know, basically it exploded and we separated for about a month and essentially at the very, I went out on another tour and right after me and everything to nothing had come out and it was just really, really dark time. And like I said in the article, you know, I'd gained a bunch of weight from eating terribly, drinking terribly. And, uh, I got back from this tour and it was just totally kind of a, I won't go into the details, but it was a very like movie moment of when the two of us realized like, man, this is not going to be easy, but there's nobody else that I want to do this with, you know, so we have to, to work through this and, you know, counseling and, um, learning how to, you know, be a, a, not just, you know, a good husband from the outside, but a good partner and her learning the same thing. And, all of that stuff, you know, <clears throat> all started to get solved and better and solved um, towards the very end of the Mean Everything to Nothing um, record cycle. And when we kind of got back together and uh, moved to a different place, moved to a house, and I started then writing Simple Math. And Simple Math is, in a sense, sort of a redemption album, um, love letter you know, apology letter, yeah. documentation of what the hell just happened those last two years. But like, even as you're going through this personal turmoil, I mean, those were great years for the band. I mean, you were really blowing up at that time. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, you know, it was still day to day. You know, it, it wasn't it wasn't such a massive incline that we were really even considering that yet you know like we knew we were in a tour bus so that was a, a much you know <laughs> appreciated and, and needed adjustment um to kind of you know mental and personal health as well after years of doing it but yeah i mean luckily we all not to mention to our drummer had left during the time yeah it just got it got kind of it got messy and um the the fact that me and everything ended up having you know a song that went to the radio and that was definitely kind of a, a silver lining to to that moment and we realized like oh wow we've grown even bigger than we thought we were when we were out here on the road and you know now let's try and make a experimental record and screw it all up right I mean <laughs> you, I mean you've your band has always had this sort of interesting profile because you know I, I said you guys were blowing up and you you kind of like uh, diffuse that a little bit and yeah it's true that you weren't like the biggest band in the world but like I just remember talking to Julian Baker about how like in her scene in Memphis that like you mm -hmm. guys were like this touchstone band like t touchstone band that like if you're going to cover a song at the end of the night it was going to be a Manchester song because totally yeah I thought that was so cool and there um, are and I feel like there's like a generation of like especially like punk and emo people who are just kind of now coming into their own who like maybe the first record they got or like the first record that meant something to them was like a Manchester record, especially one of those first two records. Right. Um, so it's definitely seems like within that scene that you really gained a foothold at that time. Yeah. I think I just wasn't tuned into it. Yeah. 
it wasn't like Twitter had really just started, you know, like to, to, especially with musicians, like, oh, oh nine, I think is right. At least that's when sort of we found out about it and we were told we needed to get it. Um, so I don't think I really had a way of knowing that if that was happening, you know, I just had sort of like reports back from the record label saying how many albums we'd sold and what markets and, um, you know, what radio stations were playing. I've got friends and, you know, how many spins we got and then how many tickets were sold, you know, in the town. So I didn't really have a way to know that that was happening. Probably a good thing yeah. <laughs> that I didn't know. Yeah, I mean, what would you say to someone, you know, who's maybe up and coming now about the secret to longevity? Because you've not only hung in there as a band, but you've like been in the major label system, which can chew bands up and spit them out. And yet you've, I mean, you've had lineup changes and all that, and you've had, you know, and you were just talking about some of the rough periods that you've had, but you've been able to keep it going. I mean, what has enabled you to do that, you think? Well, being smart about what deal you sign. I mean, that's, that's it. That's, that's your main number one do not sign a bad record deal regardless of who the record label is or who else is on their record label because it doesn't matter who else is on your record label. Um, that's just sort of a mystique. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, this this label, they did this. It's like, yeah, but everybody that did that's all gone now. And, you know, they have five records coming out the same day as yours. And also, your record's not coming out anymore. You know, for us, it was like making sure we met with every single person that worked at the at the label, we would ask to meet the head of the label, um, not just, you know, the A&R guy. We wanted to make sure that we weren't signing a deal that would leave us on the shelf because all we saw was that happening, you know. And when we were first coming out, there were some indies, you know, interested in us when there were labels looking for us. But all the, you know, super hip at the time labels weren't interested in us. And so we realized like we had to create our own indie in order to get what we wanted out of that. But these major labels were really interested. And in fact, the people at the major label that were trying to sign us were really cool people. Um, so we just fought for that. And we fought for, we fight for our contractual rights every time there's anything in front of us. Um, that, that was, that's been a big one. I think if we would have felt there would have been a time where, a record got shelved or we felt like we couldn't have a creative output, the, the creative output that we wanted. I think it would have been a lot more tempting to try and kind of maybe pack it in. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, determination, <laughs> you know, um, that's another one, the, the will to like want to continue to create and be better and um, learning how to ask other people to help you do that and being okay with other people helping you do that. I don't know. You know, there's, there's also just a weird thing. I think like Robert and I are both just sort of born with some, some line in our lineage that some mix between workaholic perfectionist thing in there that we both caught. And when we're around each other, you know, we can just dream musically and then create all day. So that's, you know, having people surrounding you um, is, is also wildly important for longevity. Well, and that's a good place to segue to talking about the new record, Black Metal, The Surface, coming out July 28th. 
This is the promo part of the podcast, by the way. I, yes. I hope you appreciate me uh, dropping the release date in there as well. Um, <laughs> but um, you, know, you talked before about talking to the record label and making sure that that you can exercise your contractual rights and have the freedom to make the kind of record that you want to make. And this record definitely seemed like a situation where if you didn't have a good relationship with your label, that they might have stepped in at some point and said, enough. Because you worked on it for a while, you, know, you ended up going to L.A., working with a couple additional producers, John Congleton uh, being one, uh, Jonathan Wilson being another, who kind of you know, added some input late in, the, late in the process. I mean, it definitely seemed like you had enough space to make the record that you wanted to make. I mean, is it hard to carve out that kind of space, or do you feel like you just have a good relationship that you can do that, like with your label? Well, I mean, I'm fortunate because the label was, they stood behind what we wanted to do and gave us great ideas on how to accomplish it. Um, this record, I really didn't want to be the guy. Like, I refrained on calling the label for, for two months while we were making it just because I was concerned, but I didn't think my concerns were valid yet, and they were too early. And so every day I'd have to go, like, don't call and, like, be that guy. Well, like, what were you concerned about? <laughs> that it wasn't sounding good that we were making a terrible record. <laughs> you know, that's truly what it was like. We would worry about that. I would worry that um, we were just in over our head and we were trying to accomplish way too much and the vibe wasn't right with Catherine or, you know, the I wasn't in the right place. And it just bullshit, little bullshit things every day, you know, that would be easy to call someone and have them go all right well we're going to work it out and i just knew this is something i had to, we had to work out ourselves this is part of the process of trying to push yourself and create something different um but when i finally did call because it got to a place where it's like hey we know there's a deadline here but you know we're not even close to the deadline it's not going to be done by the time it's supposed to be done there was just from everyone we work with from our agent to our management to our label everybody said you know who cares like the tour can move. It doesn't matter. You know, what we need to worry about is the best record possible, you know, and I don't, our label isn't going to like rise or fall on if our record comes out in the second or third quarter of, you know, 2017. So just having that freedom, you know, was, was huge. And I knew that they were going to be great because we made cope on our own and it was such a different, strange record and they were just so behind it. Um, and didn't ask us to change anything about that, that I, I knew they were going to like be down with us. I, I mean, does that power come from like having a good fan base? I mean, cause I feel like that's not a typical thing. I feel like, you know, record companies, you hear stories all the time where they, they intercede and they want a single or they want this or that. Um, I mean, why do you think you are afforded that kind of freedom and power? Well, I think it's just more about how the record label navigates those particular issues because those things are still important to them. Um, so for like this record, a song like The Gold, we wrote 10 songs for the record and Ryan Wally, our A&R, um, I was driving around and meeting producers with him and I kind of knew it that it wasn't done at 10 songs, but I just, no one would tell me. And I just said to him, you know, like, is it enough? He's like, you need one more. And I was like, we need one, right? And he's like, you need like the one, like the, that, that's, that's gonna, that, that'll hit them all. And I was like, all right, I've got like this one idea and you know, where should we go? He's like, go back and see that cabin. You wrote 10 great songs there. Um, you know, and it's more about like encouraging 
and, and motivating rather than demanding. We need a lead single, you know, we need this and, and interceding. Um, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I guess our longevity, it doesn't hurt that the guy that we're on a record label with now, you know, was also one of the labels that was trying to sign us on our first record. And he followed our career and is a fan of what I do. And so I think when it came time that we were out of our um, Columbia deal, you know, he was one of the people that wanted to, to try and work together again after a first time that didn't work out. Um, and I don't know, I could say a bunch of self-flattering things, but <laughs> I'm not sure if I believe them, but ho- hopefully I think it's because they trust that I'm, uh, I take my songwriting more seriously than they do. And I want the best end result, you know, and I'm not trying to like tank anything or make an artistic statement just to be an asshole. Well, you know, I want to go back to something you said before where, when you were working on like one of the first two records and how you said that you had stomach ulcers at that time because you yeah. were worried that you weren't going to be able to deliver. And it seems like that anxiety that you have has not gone away. Like It seems like there was a version of that working on this record. I mean, you just said that you almost called the label a bunch of times saying that the record sucked and you felt like you were lost. Sure. And, and I know like when we talked for the story that all of you guys talked about how this record was sort of a process of discovery. Like you were chasing something that you didn't really know what it was until you got it. Um, you know, I'm always intrigued by like when artists know that something is done, you know, cause yeah. you work on something, especially like a record, like you're working on it for so long and it seemed like you guys were really tinkering forever trying to achieve this right sort of alchemy how do you know when you're done? How do you know when to walk away? Is it just exhaustion at some point or? I mean, th- this time I really didn't, you know, I really had to submit <laughs> as a person to the album because I think I told you, like I was listening to mixes, you know, and I'm, and like I heard a shaker that just was sort of sounding the, the wrong to me at that moment. And I like kicked a trash can in the kitchen and I'm like, wow, like you're a grown up, and you just kicked a trash can over a shaker. And I realized my, my ears and my brain were just playing tricks on me. And so essentially I just had to take like the 10 closest valued ride or die opinions of people that I, I really trust. And they were able to kind of help me say, okay, it's done. <laughs> like what? Like how about now? Like, can you hear the record? Now, now? it feels done. Now yeah. I'm really proud of it. Yeah, it feels great now. It's, 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 I think Robert was saying it to you, but it, he, the first when the gold came out, it was like, all right, there's no going back. <laughs> all right, let's be proud of the work. Let's stop worrying about the work. Let's be proud of it. Right. I mean, has, has there ever been a point where you put out something and like you felt the opposite, where you're like, oh no, we didn't do it. Or, or, or do you normally feel like, okay, by the time something comes out, we did it and you feel good about it? This is the, this is the longest it's taken me. Because um, I think there's also something about a youthful um, arrogance and, a, and assuredness that you can kind of trick yourself. You're like, well, maybe this didn't reach where exactly where I was hoping it did. But fuck it, it's the greatest album of all time. <laughs> you know? And I'm going to believe that. I'm going to say it a thousand times and I'll believe it. Um, and that really didn't happen a ton, but I think, you know, you can just kind of go, yeah, I I was able to be more sure of previous records before this one. And I think it's just because it was such a, a a challenge and trying to take a step, 
you know, in, in, in a really different direction. Yeah, I mean, I've found this when I've talked to a lot of musicians where as they get older, they know that they're getting better as musicians, as songwriters, but in a way it becomes harder to do what they do because, one, they have all this stuff in the rear view that they don't want to repeat, so you, you, you can't do the moves that you've kind of perfected already. Correct. And two, because you you as you said, you kind of have higher standards for yourself. It's like when you're young, you can just make like this glorious noise and it's like, this is awesome, and I made it, and you can put it out and feel good about it. But 10 years later, you're like, I can't do that anymore because I already did it, and I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah, and it's cool because I love listening to those old records. Whenever they come on, it's like, oh, awesome. <laughs> I would never think to do something like that now. You know, or like that's, that's interesting that there was just this kind of beautiful, naive subconscious thing going on that was working really well um and i think sure there's stuff like like that that's still happening now um but yeah i mean that's that's the whole thing right it's how how do we make an album that's not like what we've done and especially on this record there were tons of songs sort of they started to sound like other things we'd done and then we ended up just having to throw parts of them away and fill them in and you know, get to a place where we felt inspired by all of them. You know, we, we, we've talked about the stress of the creative process. I mean, I know from talking with you that you feel really energized and engaged with what you're doing. Like, where does the joy come from for you at this point? Uh, the writing of it and the performing of it and the final product, you know, like there is something so cool about a song written you know, at nine o'clock in the morning or, you know, one afternoon that is just this tiny idea. And it, 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 you see this process and evolution that it goes through over two and a half, three years. And then you finally see the moth is a good example. The third track on the new Manchester record has, you finally see it come out and it's like, wow, what a journey that song took <laughs> in four different States. And, you know, <laughs> and two different countries and now here it is now, that's joyful to me and i think you know when people react positively to our music and feel like our music is kind of helping them and and uh and giving them joy i mean that's that that's really joyful to me to be able to be in that position well andy it's always a pleasure talking with you yeah, you too, man. I think the record turned out great. I think uh, people are going to really love it, and uh, good luck with it moving Thanks forward. Thanks so much. All right, man. Well, take care. Thanks, brother. Have right. a good one. You too, man. All right, that was me and Andy Hall of Manchester Orchestra talking about A Black Mile to the Surface, which again comes out July 28th. And like I said, I'm a big fan of the record. I recommend that you go pick it up. I think it's really great. Guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode uh, this week on Celebration Rock. I say this every week, but I always mean it. We wouldn't even have a show if we didn't have listeners. Um, it's your support that keeps this show running. So I, I just want to thank you all for listening, for talking about the show, for leaving us reviews on iTunes, for patronizing our sponsors, uh, for doing all the things that uh, keep us going. Thank you so much. We will be back next week with more Celebration Rock. We'll see you then.